Numbers 9, verses 1 through 14, talks about what is sometimes described as the little Passover. The setting is describing the first Passover or or the original uh, Passover. Well, the Passover that was observed the 14th day of the first month. But what happens if someone was unclean and not able to experience that? All of that is told in Numbers 9, verses 1 through 14. Let's start out with at least the first five verses. Thus the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year, after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Now let the sons of Israel observe the Passover at its appointed times. On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight, you shall observe it. At its appointed time, you shall observe it according to all its statutes and according to all its ordinances. So Moses told the sons of Israel to observe the Passover. They observed the Passover in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai according to all the Lord had commanded Moses, so the sons of Israel did. Now, this section that deals with what we call the little Passover is going to be verses 1 through 14. The original Passover that we read of was in Exodus 12, 51 verses, and it took up the whole chapter. 51 verses describing that Passover and how it was observed on the first month and the 14th day. And Israel was told that this was to happen all throughout all their generations. The first month, the 14th day. This is emphasized both here in verse 3 and in verse 5. In 9 verse 3 and 9 verse 5. They are to observe the 14th day of the first month. Also, the text tells us that they would observe this at twilight. You see that expression in chapter 9, verse 3. There was uh, some debate among the Jewish people as to when that was. When was twilight? Uh, Generally, by New Testament times, it's viewed as around 3 p.m. That was the time. And so all of this in verses 1 through 5 deals with the 14th day of the first month and God's original commandment about Passover. Now in verse 6, some men, there were some men who were unclean because of the dead person. So they could not observe the Passover that day. So they came to Moses and Aaron on that day. And those men said to him, Though we are unclean because of the dead person, why are we restrained from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the sons of Israel? Moses therefore said to them, Wait, and I will listen to what the Lord will command concerning you. I think that's interesting on several levels. First of all, these people apparently desperately wanted to partake of the Passover. 
they were hindered from taking of the Passover because they were unclean by coming in contact with a dead body. Now we know there were several ways you could become unclean, but in this text, it is highlighted that they were unclean by coming in contact uh, with a dead body. And they ask Moses, why are we presented, why are we restrained from presenting the offering of the Lord? Now, that's a good question. And Moses doesn't just fly off and say, you know, here's an answer. I want to tell you when I most fear misrepresenting God. It's not in a sermon or a class that I know is coming that I've had time to think it out. Not that I've always thought it out as much as I would like or that there were other books that I wouldn't have liked to have read that could have helped and given me more information. But at least I know that's coming. You know, I know that's coming and I can make some preparation. What bothers me is sometimes I'll get a question that has absolutely nothing to do with anything I'm studying at the time. Instead of just sometimes saying, I don't know, I'll try to give an answer off the cuff. Moses says, wait. And we'll see what the Lord says. They're acknowledging that this is a situation the Lord has not spoken about. Wait and let's see what the Lord will say. Now, they would investigate the Lord's will different than we would. We would go to the book and begin looking at it and thinking through the principles of it. He could expect a word from the Lord. As verse 9 tells us, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and saying, If any of you of your generation becomes unclean because of a person, and you notice the word dead is in italics. John, this is the kind of case you ask about in 5 verse 2. Uh, but obviously the person is a dead person. It's already been talked about in verses uh, 6 and 7. But in verse 10, you become unclean because of a person or your own a distant journey. You You may observe the Passover. In verse 11, in the second month, on the 14th day of the month, they shall observe it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. So, Passover generally the 14th day of the first month. But on the second month and the 14th day, those who were unclean on the first month and the 14th day or those who were on a long journey, we'll see also in verse 13, they could partake of the Passover on this second month or in this second month. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, verse 12, nor break a bone of it according to all the statute of the Passover they shall observe it. But the man who is clean and is not on a journey and yet neglects to observe the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people, for he did not present the offering of the Lord at the appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. 
If an alien sojourns among you and observes the Passover to the Lord according to the statute of the Passover and according to its ordinance, so you shall do. You shall have one statute both for the alien and the native of the land. Now let's look at some of these instructions about the Passover. They were to eat the Passover in verse 11, in 9 verse 11, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And the bitter herbs were supposedly to to remember the bitterness of Egyptian bondage. And you see these commandments given in Exodus 12 verse 8. And they're reiterated with this. They are to leave none of it till morning. Leave none of it. Now this was said about the original Passover in Exodus 12 and verse 10. It was also said about the Thanksgiving peace offering in Leviticus chapter 7 verse 15 and Leviticus 22 verses 29 and 30. So of these offerings, the Thanksgiving peace offering or the Passover offering, you could not leave any of it till morning. And no bone is to be broken. That was also stated of the original Passover in Exodus 12 and verse 46. You're to eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. You're to leave none of it till morning. Just like the manna, they were to not leave any of that till the morning on six days a week. And you shall not break its bone. So, this is possible for any of them who is unclean or is on a distant journey. But, if you, just, you can't just decide, you know, I don't want to keep the Passover this year. If you decided that, you were cut off from among the people, according to verse 13. And this instruction even applies, verse 14, to the alien that lives among them. Now we read that in Exodus 12 verse 48, uh, I believe it's 48 and 49, both that talk about the alien who keeps this is to keep it the same way. Apparently it wasn't an obligation of the foreigner who lived among them. But if they're going to keep it, they keep it the same way. They must be circumcised. And they keep it the same way. It is interesting to me that God's covenant with with Moses and God's covenant with Israel makes so many provisions for aliens who want to observe it. Now, can you think of a time in Israel's history where they celebrate the Passover on the 14th day of the second month? Before you say that, Ryan, you may have your hand up. Was it when Josiah instituted the reforms and they were late already? No, but you're close. You're close. Yeah, Hezekiah. It was Hezekiah when he did that. Let's talk just a moment 
about major Passovers in the Old Testament because there aren't that many major Passovers. You have the first one in Exodus 12 and this one is referenced here in Numbers 9. They They kept it this second year after coming out of Egypt. The second year after they came out of Egypt. Now, what were some other times? You all have mentioned one already. You'll mention two. Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 20, 2 Chronicles 30, excuse me, and Josiah in 2 Chronicles 35. And it's good that you're familiar with those. There are a couple of more Passovers that were observed. Mary. When they crossed the Jordan in Joshua 5, they observed, they, they observed the Passover there. That is, apparently, it has fallen out of practice in the wilderness. Now, we don't know exactly when, but a reason I say that is because before they keep the Passover here, they first circumcise the men. Remember it was stated in Exodus twelve forty eight that everyone that ate of it had to be circumcised. And we're told that some in that generation that were born in the wilderness had not been circumcised. So apparently they don't practice it most of the time in the wilderness. But as Mary stated, after they cross the Jordan and they come into the land of Canaan, then they celebrate the Passover. And so when they leave Egypt, they celebrate the Passover in Exodus 12. When they come to the promised land in Joshua 5, they celebrate the Passover. In a way, Passover begins these wilderness wanderings and Passover ends this wilderness wandering. The times of Hezekiah and Josiah, we'll mention more in a moment. Then you have Ezra chapter 6, verses 19 through 22, after the people had finished the temple of the Lord, if they returned from Babylonian captivity and rebuilt the temple, then they celebrate the Passover there. And that seems to kind of cement the idea in context that this return from Babylonian captivity is a second Exodus. It's another Exodus. Just as when they came out of Egypt, they celebrate the Passover. When they enter the Promised Land, they celebrate the Passover. When they come back to the land and build the temple, they celebrate the Passover again. Now, the thing that Sarah and um, and Ryan worked together to come up with, the time of Hezekiah here, what happened is the king before Hezekiah was a wicked king by the name of Ahaz. And he had closed the doors of the temple of the Lord. And the temple was so uh, contaminated and purified, uh, so contaminated in need of purification, that they start on the first day of the first month to purify the temple. They don't even finish that process until the 16th day of the first month. And so you can't celebrate the Passover, can you? And so there the whole nation celebrates that Passover on the 14th day of the second month. Second Chronicles 30 is a really beautiful chapter, really powerful chapter. Uh, I would encourage you to read it. One thing, this is after the division of the kingdoms. 
But still Hezekiah invites those Jewish people that remained in all the lands of the north to come down to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover. And he says to them in Second Chronicles 30 verse 12, we will be one heart with you. The other day Ryan made the comment about how worship unifies us. He is calling, Hezekiah is calling on all the people to worship that they might have one heart, that they would be unified. Now, in the Passovers in the New Testament, you know the major Passover in the New Testament is, of course, where the Christ was crucified during that time uh, of Christ's crucifixion. But there's one more major Passover in the New Testament, and that is in Acts 12 where Peter is in prison and they are intending after Passover to deliver him to the people for crucifixion. When you think of Passover, think of deliverance. And when you look at the story of Acts 12, there are a lot of similarities between Peter's deliverance from prison and Jesus' resurrection. I think the Bible is showing us this is a time that remembers God's deliverance and celebrates God's deliverance. Now more could be said about Passover and certainly all the Passover foreshadows Jesus. That statement, not a bone will be broken, is quoted in John 19.36 having referenced the cross. 1 Corinthians 5.7 speaks of Christ as our Passover. Any questions though? Any questions right there? Any ideas? Brian? Should we understand that the second um, one would be done with the family? Because um, it seems to be very, not individual, but kind of family-oriented when they celebrate the Passover? Family-oriented as a whole, you know, but it does seem like in these cases, some of these words that he uses, like in verse 10, if any one of you or your generations, it may be that rest of the family was there to observe it, and he wasn't. It's just, it's just hard to, it's hard to tell much about this. The only time we see it really enacted was a time where it's done community wide. There in Second Chronicles chapter thirty. So uh, I don't know how realistically this this worked out. How many people it involved, and if they generally didn't keep the first Passover, a lot of periods of their history didn't. Mm-hmm. How many times did they really observe this? I just, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're good questions. We just don't have enough evidence to give very good answers. But, but generally the Passover was done as you ate that Passover meal with your family and the son asked the father, why is this night different than all other nights? Okay. Verses, Sarah... So the only reason for uncleanness listed here is because of the dead body. So would other... I take it that that is just representative. Yes, I I don't take it like if it says you were unclean because of um, some other reason of which you were innocent. I think the same principles would apply. Remember, Numbers 5 mentions somebody has a... Um, a skin disease Uh, and it also mentioned that someone has a discharge Um, if you were unclean because of those things I assume that the same principles 
apply. Seems like. Okay, verses verses 15 through 23 deal with the Lord guiding Israel as they travel through the wilderness. Now, I, I just got a feeling, as sharp as this class is, that you're going to pick up on the main idea right here in verses 15 through 23. I just, I just feel it within me. Um, who wants to read these verses for us? Anybody? They volunteer. You, you feel you can. Now on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously, the cloud went, would cover it by day, and the appearance of fire by night. Where the cloud, whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the son of his, sons of Israel would then set out, and in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out, and at the command of the Lord they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, tabernacle. For many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening till morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Wherever it was, two, whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. <coughs> at the command of the Lord, they camped, and at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to, com- according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. Okay, very good, very good. Didn't mean to erase that second line. But they travel through the wilderness. And what would you say is the main idea here as they're traveling through the wilderness? The command of the Lord is is one of the key ideas. Do you know that phrase, at the command of the Lord? And that's how it appears in the New American Standard at the command of the Lord, it could be translated literally uh, by or at the mouth of the Lord. But that phrase is used seven times in this section. It's used twice in verse 18. It's used twice in verse 20. And it's used three times in verse 23. At the command of the Lord... At the command of the Lord, they stayed. At the command of the Lord, they set out. But God is guiding them through the wilderness. God is instructing them in the way uh, that they should go. Uh, and God does this. How is it that God shows His presence in, in, in this case? The cloud. 
The cloud shows the presence of the Lord. Now, should that really surprise us? Hasn't the Lord used a cloud previously to demonstrate His presence and who He is? For example, in Exodus 19 verse 9, God revealed Himself in a cloud to the people on Mount Sinai. And then when Moses went up and received a revelation from God on Mount Sinai in chapter 24, the Bible tells us the cloud covered the mountain. And then when the tabernacle was completed... In Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, the cloud filled the tabernacle and Moses could not enter there. All of these times, the cloud represents the presence of God. It represents His presence. Now, we think of God's presence being associated in the Bible with light. And sometimes it is. But God's presence in the Bible is also associated with darkness and a cloud. Listen to these words. This is 1 Kings chapter 8. And I'll begin with verse 10. It came about when the priest came from the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. So the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said, He would dwell in a thick cloud I will surely build you a lofty place, a place for your dwelling forever. The cloud fills the house. The priest couldn't minister there. And Solomon quotes the Lord saying that he would dwell in a thick cloud. God's dwelling is associated with light at points in the Bible. But God's dwelling is associated with darkness as well with darkness to emphasize to us that God is guiding the people and this cloud represents the presence of God Uh, it represents it represents to um, God's guidance God's protection you remember Exodus 40 ends the same way this section does Exodus 40, whenever the, the cloud set out, they set out. When the cloud stayed, they stayed. But, but that, that happened ever since they left Egypt, didn't it? Remember what Exodus 21 says? Excuse me, Exodus 13, Exodus 13, verse 21. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way. And in a pillar of fire by night... To give them light that they might travel by day and night. Even before they come to Mount Sinai, when they're first coming out of the land of Egypt, God is guiding them in a pillar of fire by night and in a pillar of cloud by day. God uses this to guide them. He uses this to protect them. In Exodus 19, excuse me, I'm, I'm missing my verses. Exodus 14, 19. Exodus 14, 19. 
This is before they crossed the sea. The angel of the Lord had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Later in verse 24, it came about at morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. God uses this cloud to guide Israel as He guided them throughout the wilderness. Exodus 13, 21 and 22. He uses it to protect them as He did in Exodus 14, 19. In Exodus 14, in verse 24. He guides them. He protects them. He shows His presence. And as long as the... As long as the cloud stays, they stay. When the cloud moves, they move. But God is directing their travels. and God is guiding their path. Anything else that we should say there? Any other thoughts? Okay. Um, Exodus 10 or Numbers 10 forget what book I'm in 1 through 10 the silver trumpets the silver trumpets Tom, yes I'm sorry to go back to the cloud is, okay. are we to understand the same imagery like on the Mount of Transfiguration when the cloud descended and Moses was there and the was there. Yeah, I, I can't help but think that they tie together. I don't know the best words to express that. But, yes, I do think that we are to tie it together. And the Bible talks in First Thessalonians 4 Verse 16, and the Lord will come back and catch us up with Him and we will be with Him in the clouds. I think all that ties in too. Uh, but I don't know the best way to express the connection between them. But yes, I, Luke 9.34 is one of the passages that you speak of. It's also in Mark 9 and Luke, and, uh, Matthew 9, Luke 9. Excuse me, Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9 all have that account of the transfiguration. But yes, I think it's got to tie in. Uh, Mary and then Ryan. Yes, Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. Yes, Acts 1. In Hebrews 12, the cloud of witnesses of those who, by faith, Mm -hmm. you know, know, is that to that they're with the Lord and that gives us yeah I, now I haven't tied that one in I, I don't know I'd have to let me exercise what I said earlier and just say I don't know <laughs> I don't know I have to think about that one I will tell you one that I have thought about that I haven't mentioned you know in the Old Testament there's a passage about the Son of Man riding on the clouds and coming to the ancient of days do you remember that passage where is it Daniel 7. Daniel 7. Very good. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. 
You look in the Old Testament if you ever see anyone other than the Lord ride on the clouds. And yet that is the Son of Man coming to the ancient of days. The Old Testament passages, if they would have really looked at them carefully, do they tell us of the deity of Christ in themselves? <laughs> Apparently so. I think there are several hints there in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, that the Messiah is more than just another man and just a king, that it points to the deity of Christ. Okay. Quickly go to Numbers 10 in case somebody asked me another hard question. Okay? In verses 1 and 2, the Lord spoke further to Moses, saying, Make for yourselves two trumpets of silver, of hammered work, you shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for having the camp set out. So they're making these silver trumpets. Now, these silver trumpets, by the way, are mentioned by Josephus as he is just commenting upon the Old Testament he says Moses was the inventor of the form of the trumpet which was made of silver Uh, it was a little less than a cubit it was composed of a narrow tube um, and uh, it was in the form of a bell like common trumpets there's more you can see there if you want to look at it but he gives a little description of it and by New Testament times, uh, the Jews still had apparently these trumpets. The Arch of Titus, and you can see this, you can see pictures of it on the internet, though, though I have to acknowledge, and I was, didn't look very long on the internet, but I, I didn't find a good close-up picture of these. But Titus conquered Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and he has some things on this on this great piece of marble uh, carved into it, commemorating his conquest of Jerusalem. And he seems to have a picture of a couple of these trumpets as well. And you can just look that up. If you get a good, really good, clear picture of that, um, let me know on, on on just the internet. But so these trumpets were were used by Israel all throughout their history. What did they signal? Well, uh, when you bow, blow, and there are two different words for trumpets, by the way, in the Old Testament. When they blow the trumpet, when they're going around Jericho, that is a different word than, than this word that's used here for trumpet. But there are some occasions where they're used together, it seems. But both are blown, in verse 3, both are blown, the congregation gathers together. When you blow one, in verse 4, then the leaders assemble before Moses. When you blow an alarm, the camps set out to march. In verse uh, 5, the camps that are on the east which should be led by Judah, they they go out to march. In verse 6, when you blow an alarm the second time, then the camps on the south, like Reuben, they're going to set off and march. By the way, the Septuagint has a note after verse 6, uh, giving sounding the alarm a third time, and sound the alarm a fourth time for these other tribes that camped around. 
But in verse eight, 7, when convening the assembly, however, you shall blow without sounding an alarm. The priestly sons of Israel, moreover, shall blow the trumpets, and this shall be for you a perpetual statute throughout your generations. Milgram, Jacob Milgram, uh, a Jewish scholar and an Old Testament scholar, um, he, in his commentary on Numbers, has a special uh, section discussing these two different types of trumpet. He says the difference in these trumpets was not so much how they were used, but who got to blow them. The ram's horn trumpet, the shofar, of Joshua 6, anyone could blow, he states. As you see people blowing that when they come into the Midianite camp in the middle of the night, and they blow the horn and said, a sword for the Lord, and for Gideon. But he said that only the priest blew this type of trumpet, as verse 8 says, the priestly sons of Aaron shall blow the trumpet. So only the priest blow this kind of trumpet. Numbers 31 verse 6 will be another time that we will see this trumpet blown in the book and it will be blown by a priest. But what did, when did the priest blow this trumpet? In verse 9, when you go to war in your land against your adversary who attacks you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpet that you shall be remembered before the Lord your God and be saved from your enemies. Also in the day of your gladness and in your appointed feast, on the first days of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifice of your peace offerings, and they shall be a reminder to you before your God, I am the Lord your God. So you will blow the trumpets in verse 9 that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and saved for your enemies. In verse 10, they will be a reminder of you before your God. In a way, these trumpets were prayers as they blew out calling upon God to remember them, calling upon God to rescue them from their enemies. Now, let me show you another place in the Old Testament where you see verses, particularly verses 8 through 10, worked out in the history of Israel. In 2 Chronicles 13, 2 Chronicles 13, And by the way, the word here for trumpet will be the same word used in Numbers 10. 2 Chronicles 13, the king of Judah is named Abijah. The king of Israel is named Jeroboam. Abijah is calling upon Jeroboam not to attack him, not to act foolishly, because the Lord is with us more than He is with you. But I want you to notice... In verse 12, 2 Chronicles 13, uh, Abijah is speaking and it says, Now behold, God is with us at our head and His priest with the signal trumpets to sound an alarm against you, O sons of Israel. Do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you will not succeed. So we have the priest with us to blow the trumpets. 
In verse 13, in this battle, Jeroboam has set an ambush against Abijah behind him and in front of him. Jeroboam has out-strategized Abijah. But notice in verse 14, when Judah turned around, behold, they were attacked both front and rear. So they cried to the Lord and the priest blew the trumpets. Then the men of Judah raised a war cry. And when the men of Judah raised the war cry, then it was that God routed Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. Verse 16. When the sons of Israel fled before Judah, God gave them into their hands. In verse 18, they won the battle because they trusted in the Lord, the God of their fathers. Here, they're doing exactly what Numbers 10 tells them to do. They're in battle. The priests are blowing on the trumpets a call for God, a plea for God to remember them and to save them from their enemies. And that's exactly what happens. God hears their cry. And God answers their plea. And God gives them victory over their enemies. God remembered them and saved them from their foes. So, what we're reading here in the Pentateuch is connected with all the Old Testament. Any questions? More could be said about those Trumpets and trumpets in the Bible per se. I have a whole list of things, and I I can send out these notes. I got four pages of notes. If if you all are interested, as far as various ways as you trumpets, and I kind of combined them all here, but various ways these trumpets in the Old Testament can be used, and I think all of this too enlightens us when the Bible talks about the last trumpet shall sound. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. And 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. And just looking at the various places that trumpets are used in the Bible, it's fascinating. Um, okay. Anything else, Sarah? So is there like a New Testament corollary to the trumpet sounding? I mean... What came to mind was just prayers generally, mm-hmm. but I'm like, was there something else that I'm missing, or am I missing the mark of that? No, no. I, in the incense, remember, is specifically yeah. described in terms of prayer, and I believe it's Revelation five eight and eight three and four. I believe is where that is, but. No, I, I think it's the same. The Bible uses occasionally uses this kind of language about the trumpet sounding to talk about the second coming. Maybe even in Matthew 24 around verse 31, the destruction of Jerusalem. But no, I, I just think all of this in a way is, is closely connected um, to prayer. Uh, closely connected with certain orders to them. You remember the passage in the New Testament? And this is really a fascinating passage. But let me just read it. And you think about the subject that's talking about. Paul is talking about just speaking words that can be understood in the assembly. 
and he said if the bugle produces an un, an indistinct sound who will prepare himself for battle where do you see that expression you remember First Corinthians 14. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 8. And because he's saying, if you're speaking in all these tongues, but nobody understands them, what good does it do? If you could blow the bugle and uh, nobody understood it, which would be the case if I blew it, um, then what, what, good, what message has it conveyed? But, but those people in Israel, they knew when they heard certain sounds what was being told. And, um, and and so right after he has this section, then you have this section in verses 11 through 28 as far as they use these uh, trumpets. It's not specifically stated, but, but he stated in chapter 10, verse 5, that you're going to hear them and you're going to set off to march. And so we've just seen God's guided by the cloud. He's going to guide them by the trumpets. And now they set off to march. So we know that God was guiding them. And He divided these groups up. The group that was associated with Judah begins marching first. And then after Judah, you have the people of Merari and the people of uh, Gershon that march. And then those that were associated in verses 18 through 20 with Reuben. And those, and then you had Kohath who carried the holy objects. Then in verses 22 through 24, you have the tribes uh, that were associated with Ephraim. And then in verses 25 through 27, I may be missing a step here somewhere, but it is the tribes associated with Dan. I've got the basic idea. I may have missed a verse somewhere beyond Kohath there. But uh, the point is they're all marching in the order that God has given them back uh, in Numbers 2. It laid out all these same things and they're, they're acting this out. Now, we won't go over that in much detail. Let's look at a couple of... Let's look at... I'm not going to skip the thing about Hobab. If we don't get it tonight, we'll try to get it, Lord willing, Sunday. But I want you to look at how this ends because it raises a question that I want to ask. Uh, In verse 33, They set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey with the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for three days to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee from before you. When it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. Now, one of you did ask me the question. When Kohath, who generally carried the Ark of the Covenant, when they were marching, did they carry the Ark of the Covenant right in the middle of the group? Or does the Ark of the Covenant march ahead of the group? As this verse says. Now, I want to tell you, I was very proud of my answer at that moment. I said, let's wait till we get to that text. Not that I have an answer now, but but at least I was wise enough to say, let's wait till we get to that text. 
Do you know that some Jewish writers believe that they actually took two arcs of the covenant, one right in the middle and one right in front? Now, I don't see that. I take this, that Kohath carries these holy objects in the middle, but they carry the other ones and that the ark leads the way. Now, can I answer every question with that? No. But does it seem to me to be what the text is saying? Yes. Does it also fit with things that we read in their later history? Where are some places in the Old Testament that you read frequently about the ark? Besides when it's built in Exodus 25-40, where are some other places that you read of the ark. When it's captured. Okay, when it's captured in 1 Samuel 4 through 6, you're right. You see it a whole lot there. You also see it where else? Joshua. Okay, in Joshua's time, in a couple of places, in Joshua 3 and 4, when they cross the Jordan. And then in Joshua 6, when they conquer Jericho. Now, 1 Samuel 4-6 through that Sarah mentioned, who were they in battle with in that case? Philistines. And the Philistines are going to take the ark, and wherever they go, death and destruction follows, and they said, we'll send it back. And so they send back the ark of the covenant. The people don't seek the ark in the days of Saul. They seek it in the days of David. In 2 Samuel 6, they seek to move it to Jerusalem. But disaster ensues. Uzzah is struck dead because they didn't move the ark properly. Then in the end part of that chapter, they move it properly and it all it comes to rest in Jerusalem. You see it, 2 Samuel 11, verse 11. The person who's speaking those words at that point is Uriah. And Uriah is not going to go home and sleep with his wife like David wants him to. Well, the ark of God is intense. Now, I take it that generally Israel took the ark before them here. That generally they took the ark to battle, it seems like. In Numbers 14, 44, when they go to battle, when they don't take the Ark of the Covenant, Numbers 14, 44, that just means the Lord is not with them. So, I think generally they did take it with them and generally it leads the way. It is another reminder of God's presence. God has left Himself with great reminders of His presence, hasn't He? How many, um, how many songs? Don't you think about this? We won't get an answer tonight, but how many songs that we've sung over the years in assemblies deal with the period of numbers in the Bible? Think about it a little bit, and we'll try to come up with it because it, there are a few that particularly focus. On the book of Numbers. But we'll try to start with Hobab, Lord willing, on Sunday and see if we can get through 11 and 12. I don't know. Thank you. God bless.